0: Welcome to episode 53 of the While She Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today, we're talking about improvisational quilting with my guest, Sherry Lynn Wood. Sherry Lynn Wood is an artist working in Oakland, California. She's the recipient of the Joan Mitchell Foundation grant for painters and sculptors and a two time McDowell Colony Fellow. She has been making and improvising quilts as a creative life practice for 25 years and blogs about it at daintytime.net. Teaching credits include Penland School of Craft, QuiltCon, and numerous modern and traditional guilds across the country. Her first book, The Improv Handbook for Modern Quilters, A Guide to Creating, Quilting, and Living Courageously, was released by SCC Craft Abrams in 2015 in May and has already sold more than 6,000 copies. Sherry, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Abby. Yeah, it's great to talk to you. I really enjoyed reading your book and learning more about your story. So um, your first post on Dainty Time, your blog, was in May of 2010. And in it, you made a statement of purpose. You said, I'm blogging about craft as a life practice. And I wonder what sort of prompted you to start blogging back then?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Um, And I'm surprised you looked way back there. Um, You know, actually, one of the things that made me start doing that was that an editor from Random House had contacted me out of the blue and asked me if I would consider doing a book proposal, presenting a book proposal to them about improvisation and patchwork. I I mean, I had no idea. I was just driving down the highway. I had to pull off and take the phone call. And... So I did that, um, and I I guess this editor had just seen my work online, just my quilts online, and had asked me about it. I hadn't been blogging or anything like that. And actually, it was a very uh, challenging time for me in San Francisco. I had moved like four times that year looking for affordable housing. And so I, um, I, I went ahead and did the proposal. And, I mean, I have plenty of ideas to write, you know, of what I wanted to write. And uh, so the proposal wasn't hard for me to write up. When I presented it, um, you know, I did get an agent to help me out with it, uh, although it was kind of a done deal. I knew that they would, you know, because they approached me, it wasn't like I was shopping it around to other places or something. But the offer they came back with was really low. And, um and like I said, I was just in a bad place in terms of my own um, feeling settled in the Bay Area. And it just the timing just wasn't right for me to do a book. So I just decided, you know what, I'm going to, I mean, it's pretty hard to pass an offer to write a book, right? You know, But I just decided the timing's not right for me. I'm going to pass up this offer to write this book right now and instead i'll just try writing a blog and i can you know i can get my ideas more clear i can develop my voice better perhaps i can build more of an audience and then when i'm ready i will send out a proposal to you know more than one editor and see what happens and that's what i did so that's what got me blogging and it was a great experience cuz i had no idea that kind of community that was out there. I was just completely clueless about it until
0: I started blogging. So, um, that's, that's, that's how it came about. I think that was such a smart move. I just have to tell you because very often people are plucked like that, um, sort of unexpectedly and an offer lands in their lap. And it's very hard, as you said, to turn it down when it comes to you that way, but it doesn't mean that it's the right time, the right publishing house, the right concept, the right financial offer. And so to come to wait and to blog and to come back on your own terms, and now look what you've created. I mean, this book is amazing. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to say that I think that, yeah. that, that was a great idea. <laughs>
1: Thank you. Yeah. So it was really um, in my chaotic state. Maybe it's sometimes when you're in so much chaos, you don't really have any other choice. My car was also set on fire in San Francisco Mission District that year. So, I mean, it was really a chaotic time. <laughs> and sometimes you just don't have any other choice, you know, but to say no, even when good things come. Um, but I think in some internal part of me realized that, you know, this was really important for me to, to write about my um creative life and practice and if i wasn't at my best it wasn't the right, the right time to do it you know because i wanted it to be i wanted to give it my best
0: yeah so yeah. um so you have two advanced degrees and they make such an interesting combination first you have a master's degree from emory and theological studies which you got in 1997 and then eight years later, an MFA in sculpture from Bard College. Do I have that right? Uh, I got my degree at Bard in 2005. Okay. The
1: official date.
0: Okay. So, so. Did, were you intending to be a minister when you were growing up or were you intending to be an artist? And do you feel like you've sort of combined the two in a certain way?
1: I was intending to be a minister when I was growing up, and, and I went to grad school right out of college, to seminary, and I was actually a divinity school dropout, so I attended seminary in 1990, I think I dropped out in 1989, but I got my divinity school, and then I became an artist, so no, I didn't have any intention of becoming an artist when I was younger, or when I was in college. And after I dropped out of divinity school, I started making quilts. And, but I always sewed when I was a kid. So I had never made a quilt before, but I started making quilts uh, once I dropped out of divinity school and selling at the local farmer's market, and it led into an art practice. And um, I got my divinity school degree actually eight years after, seven or eight years after I dropped out. Of the Divinity School program. And the only thing I had, uh, what I needed was a thesis. So that's all I needed to get my Master's of Theological Studies. And so I was doing these quilts with, um, that were based on different sacred texts and contained theological, you know, worked with theological ideas on a visual uh, level. And so somebody said, you should send those to the dean at the school and see if they would give you credit for your thesis and give you your degree. And so I did that, and, I, and they gave me my degree. So that was kind of an after, an after byproduct, right, after doing the artwork. Um, so I wasn't going to get the degree. I'd kind of given that up. So that was kind of a secondary thing that came up out of – you know, letting go of that and then doing the art. And then I was like, well, if they'll give me the degree for my artwork and they won't, I'd say, I'm not even going to write an artist statement. And they were just, they just loved the work and they were like very happy to give me the degree. Wow. Yeah. And then then as I moved forward, you know, I was trying to decide professionally where I was going to go. I wanted to go to school. For a while I thought about going into art therapy, some art therapy program, but that, that really was focused on, you know, more of a therapeutic medical model, not on aesthetics and art. Right, right. And, um, so I decided to get an MFA and I decided though, I also decided that You know, there's so many possibilities once you start to tap into creativity and the directions that you can go in. Um, I decided that I wanted to continue because a lot of my work, uh, my early work helped kind of heal my own uh, life in certain ways. And I wanted to continue practices that uh, healed myself but also uh, participated in the community in that way. So that was kind of my... Focus on in going into art school I wasn't that popular in art school <laughs> but I pulled it off I pulled it off and um and uh so yeah my I I you know so I do practice you know I guess the 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 term these days is social practice is one of the ways they talk about the work the kind of work that is uh, you know that engages community and um Provides opportunities for, you know, exchange through aesthetic objects or happenings or projects and things like that. So, in, in a larger view, this, the work that I do with the quilt making is part of that practice.
0: Right, right, right. That is fascinating. And I, I looked through some of your, um, community based art making and events that you've done with, um, a pinata that you created in Durham during urban redevelopment. Um, just some of the ways that you've sort of made art go out into the community and become part of something that everybody experiences, Mm -hmm. um, which is really fascinating. And I, I love to see the threads of that carried through today to the way that you're teaching, um, improv quilting all over the country. So, um, I, I definitely see all these threads coming together, which is really neat. Um, so, okay. So you started working on a book proposal with your agent. Is this, is Joy as your agent now? Is she the agent you worked with back in with the first proposal?
1: Yes, she was. And, 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 uh, she was recommended to you know, so this was a great this was a great opportunity, even though I did not take that um, opportunity to write the book. You know, the, the editor said to me, you know, well, I said, well, I might need an agent. She says, well, you don't actually have to have an agent because we're, you know, we're kind of really interested in having this book written Uh but, I, but if you would like, if you would feel more comfortable with an agent, I can recommend somebody that I really like working with. And so she recommended Joy. And then I had another friend who had recently published a book uh, who recommended her agent, who was L.A.-based. And I, I contacted both the agents, and and I really liked Joy. She probably would not have taken me on if this wasn't already a done deal. So she was just, you know, she doesn't really take on too many new people, but because it wasn't like she had to pitch it or anything like that, she could just take the percentage if I accept. I mean, she had to negotiate the deal a little bit and, um, So she uh, took me under her wing and, I mean, she she took me on, I guess not under her wing, but she just took me on and said, yeah, I'll I'll represent you. And then when I turned down the offer, I said, you know, I might be interested in doing a book later. And she says, well, if you are, you know, we could see about that. She said, we would have to, you know, put you through um, proposal boot camp because this proposal would never fly, you know, in terms of... (laughs) pitching it to uh multiple publishers right and i was like okay and um and so a couple years later she got back in touch with me and said um are you are you still thinking about that book and i said yeah so we had a nice talk and we decided to do it and my proposal was 50 pages long (laughs) my book proposal ended up being 50 pages long so we worked on this big proposal and um and we sent it out. So it was great. And you yeah. had
0: a lot of interest this time around. You had multiple offers and then chose to go with, um, with Abrams, STC Craft. So it's a, yes. Mel- a Melanie Fallick book, which is beautiful. Right. Yes. Yeah. yes.
1: Yes. yes, because their books are so beautiful and Absolutely. her books are so beautiful.
0: Again, great choice. Right. <laughs> so...
1: They, um, didn't so it is without them. They, it was amazing what they
0: did. Yeah. No, I agree with you uh, 100%. Um, and you received a, the Joan Mitchell Foundation grant that I um, referenced in the introduction, Um, and you said that that helps, helped to give you the financial freedom to write a book for two years. Yeah. Um, so do you want to tell us a little bit about the Joan Mitchell foundation and, uh, was the grant, was that the $25,000 grant that they give out?
1: Yes. Uh Uh-huh. So that's a grant that you get, um, invited to apply to. So, um, somebody recommended me and then they contacted me and asked me to apply. And it's a very simple application compared to some artists, um, grant rep, rep uh, applications. You don't have to have a project or anything. All they wanted was eight images of recent work. You didn't even have to write an artist statement if you didn't want to, but of course you want to write an artist statement so people can give, so you can give, you know, so that you can announce your own frame, you know, so people can kind of get an idea of what you're trying to do. Uh, so all I wrote really was an artist statement And submitted eight images. I mean, that's maybe the hardest part is, you know, curating it down to eight images. And then you send it off. So everybody that you're competing against, though, are all pretty high-level artists because they've, they've been invited to apply. It's not an open application call. So I was completely shocked when I got it. I was just so surprised and thrilled. You know, I just, I, you know, of course I was excited to apply, but I didn't have much, I, and I just didn't expect to get it. And um, so that was great, and that made a huge difference for me financially um, just in terms of allowing me to get out of debt, completely out of debt. I'm totally debt-free now. And um, just to have money to... Uh, feel a little more at ease with making decisions, and um, the book paid actually very. You know, I, I had a nice offer. It wasn't like I got a pittance for writing the book. I got paid well, but just the timing of it all. Um, if you don't have that cushion of support behind you, because so many times artists live right on the edge. I mean, all my life I've right. always lived right on the edge, and if you don't have that cushion behind you, it's It's hard to even accept opportunities because there's this, you know, even when they're going to pay, it's like, when are they going to pay? You know, when is this, you know, and you have to constantly worry about these kinds of things in the background. So the Joan Mitchell Foundation um, didn't fund the book project but it just provided enough cushion in my life for me to embark on that project without having to worry about my finances at all, without having to have that background noise. So that's, that's great. And the Joan Mitchell foundation, um, Joan Mitchell was a, um, abstract expressionist artist, um, you know, in the fifties and throughout her life, you know, when, when, Jackson Pollock and all that that crew was getting popular, and her paintings are really amazing. And this is a foundation that was created uh, from her work; and her legacy, and they support. Uh, well, it's kind of a funny. Um, it's kind of a funny honor. It's a great honor as an artist because it's a national level grant. And it vets you. In a lot of ways, when I say that I've received that grant, it already opens a few doors for me, you know, because it's it's almost like one of those grants that vet you. It says somebody's already, you know, looked at you closely and seen value in your work. And um, so it's a kind of a funny um, honor, though, because it's for artists that have um, been under-recognized, <laughs> It's for, it's, you know, it's, it's a grant that's giving to artists, been given to artists who've been under-recognized in their career. So it's, it's, uh, it's kind of a great opportunity though. Yeah. Yeah. And recognized in that way.
0: Yeah. And super synchronicity for you because it allowed you to do this wonderful book. um, Yeah. In some way. So that, yeah, that was really nice. Um, and you, for a long while, had a day job at St. Gregory's Episcopal Church in San Francisco. Are you still doing that yeah. day
1: job? Huh? Yeah, I work there two days a week, and it's a wonderful job, I, very flexible hours, and um, it's, it's like a 20-hour-a-week job. And um, I mean, I'm salaried for 20 hours a week and the, the hours are flexible. So sometimes I work less, sometimes I work more and, um, I get health care benefits too. And they're, they're super supportive of my creativity. It allows me to travel. Um, so I really, I can work a Monday and Tuesday and travel from a Wednesday to Wednesday and then work a Thursday and Friday and not miss any work. So That's it's amazing.
0: It's, right. So you, and you're the parish administrator. That's right. I'm the church secretary. That's fantastic. So. <laughs> That's, the fact that it gives you health care, right? I mean, I think that that in itself is so valuable.
1: And there's, there's such sane people. The people I work with are just, I mean, I hear, I have so many friends, and some of them are creative friends that also have professional lives. And they are just in dreadful work situations in terms of the dysfunction of the culture that they work in and corporate and government. And, you know, I hear stories sometimes and I'm like, oh, my gosh, I just I'm so thankful not to have to have an environment like that. So I work with a lot of very functional people. And actually, um, one of my co-workers, Sarah Miles, is a very successful author and has written three books um, that have done quite well on I guess they're, I mean, I guess they're about faith and they're, they're books on faith, basically. Um, Eat the Bread and Jesus Freak and City of God. So it's about faith in the community and her work at St. Gregory's. And she, and she's an excellent editor. So she was kind of my unofficial line editor for the book. She read through the whole book and did edits with me before I submitted them to SCT.
0: How nice. Oh, nice. Yeah. Oh, nice. So
1: it's a great environment. It's so a very supportive of my creative life.
0: You've been quilting for 25 years and um, I. I want to hear a little bit about the quilts that came before the improv quilts that you're known for now. I know that there were a period of th- there was a period of time where you were doing some art quilting and um, and then some passage quilts where you were working with the clothing from somebody who had passed away to make a quilt from those those pieces of clothing so um, so tell us a little bit about sort of the quilts that came before
1: okay well you know I started making fixed pattern quilts checkerboards and and i went to the farmers i you know i just my first three quilts were just like checkerboard quilts with two fabrics and i took them to the local farmer's market and tried to sell them and i sold one or two of them like the first or second week of being out there and um I got invited, you know, people would say, well, would you do a log cabin for me? Would you do a Mariner's Compass, a Storm at Sea? So I took a lot of commissions, and they were all fixed pattern quilts. And uh, eventually, though, I saw the Who'd Have Thought It exhibition, and I was introduced to improvisational patchwork, African-American improvisational patchwork. And that kind of shifted everything for me. And then I started working in that style. And I did take a workshop with Nancy Crow. It was her first time she'd ever taught an improvisational workshop. It was at Aramont School of Craft. Uh, It was a one-week class. And she's the one that taught me that I could do all of this without a ruler. So that was like an amazing, amazing piece of knowledge for me. (laughs) It just kind of opened up my world. So my early work was just pure improv. And then I started to, um, and so a lot of my early work is probably similar to the work that I'm doing now. And then I started, though, improvising more with how things are constructed. And I was definitely influenced by uh, the art quilt movement as well. And uh, I, you know, I experimented with photo transfer and beading and embellishment. I was excited about that for a long time. I dyed fabric. Uh, so I explored all that, and I was pushing the boundaries of how quilt was constructed. I did a lot of things where I dyed batting. There's actually even an article, a how-to article, uh, that called The Quilt Reinvented in Threads Magazine that came out, I don't know when, in the 90s sometime, that talks about this process of dyeing batting and um, using machine stitching to attach, to patchwork and attach at the same time and to layer things and embellish and do it all at once. So I was doing that kind of thing for a while, and then I started using found objects. I did a whole series of pieces where I used uh, toilet seat cozies and made a yo-yo quilt out of it and pieces of afghans and... um, uh, bath mats and ponchos and trim and and so then I just started working through these really crazy materials of found objects and that 's when I started becoming more sculptural and did my first artist residency and and started more you know started down more of an art trajectory um, at a certain point with my quilt making practice though. Uh, I decided I was tired of doing commissions. I was tired of consuming so many materials, of buying all this stuff. And I I sold everything. I sold all my fabric. I just kept a little bit of my 70s vintage fabrics. But I gave away everything else and all my dyes, all my beads. And I decided to just start taking things that people gave me. And I wanted to move away from a... um, object-based practice to a service-based practice, and I started the passage quilting and doing the bereavement work with people's clothing and working with them to make the quilts and using an improvisational process that the limit was the architecture of the clothing. So the clothes are not cut up into little squares, but they're, you know, cut apart at the seams And the features of the clothing are featured in in the patchwork. You know, the shapes of the clothing are are present in the quilts. And actually, I'm still very active doing that. And I have a commission right now that I'm working on in that. And I blog about those. I mean, I haven't had as much time to do it lately. But um, you'll find um, posts on Dainty Time about this. And I'm still doing this work. So that became a part of my practice and... You know, I've done installations and traveling projects and other kinds of work. And I, you know, came back to just working more purely with the improvisation um, again. So the the passage quilting isn't really that much. It's kind of a deviation in some ways, but it's really still in line with this work that I'm doing now. Because it's still about how we put patterns together and the deep meanings of the way we create patterns and relationships that are reflected in quilts. So so the passage quilting is uh, clearly, you know, it's done with intention to um, mirror. I don't think of it as memorial quilting, although lots of people call it memorial quilts. I think of it as a bereavement process. So the actual physical action of making a quilt mirrors the internal process of of bereavement, of letting go of the clothes, cutting them up, tearing them apart, acknowledging the person is gone, Um, reorienting, and you're very disoriented when you lose somebody very important to you in your life. So having to repurpose this clothing in new ways and without a predetermined pattern, without a plan in place, because there is no plan when you lose somebody, and those pat you know working that through with a quilt helps people work through it in their life they're like oh look at this beautiful quilt i had no idea where i was going or what kind of relationships to make with this but look what how it turned out it's okay and so i can do that in my life as well and then you know then the hand quilting i encourage the hand quilting because it's a a time to remember and share stories and connect with the memories through the tactile and, and also provides a safe container to do that within and it takes time it's slow and so that kind of it mirrors that meditative process of remembering and feeling those those emotions that in the connections that you have with that person who's gone, and then sharing the quilt and sharing the stories of the person. So each step of the process kind of mirrors this internal process, right? And so the improv handbook is just that in a more um, a
0: general way, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's not focused necessarily on that particular life experience, although you could use it to help you process that particular life experience, but it's really about using this approach to quilting as a way to approach your life with bravery and intuition, um, sort of listening, listening to yourself, listening to the fabric and sort of just embracing, um, embracing mistakes, embracing, uh, you know, things not quite going the way that you thought they were going to go, but um, but still, a life practice in, in the same way that the um, the quilts that you were making with the bereaved were. Yes, that's
1: exactly right. And people recognize like one of the things I say to people in my classes all the time is, "Don't yes, but your quilt. You can't yes, but your quilt." And people do that all the time because we don't have because we don't have the plan right. We can't say we're on track or we're not on track because we don't have a picture to look at and say this is what it's going to look like. So we know we're on track, right? There's no way to make that kind of evaluation. And so people feel often feel – some people often feel very uncertain and they, yes, but. They're like, well, I like this, but I like this. And they're always second-guessing their decisions and um, – that comes up. I mean, there's lots of different things that come up, but that's just this is just an example. It comes up a lot, and I'll I'll say to somebody else like, "Don't yes, but your quilt. You have to say yes and no matter what you do. The way you you move forward is to say yes and you build, you affirm it, and you build on it, and you just keep going. You know. But it's very easy to want to yes, but something because you can't see the whole picture. And right, maybe at that one moment you don't like it, but five more steps down the road you might like it and um and so that comes up all the time and you know somebody recently in a workshop she kept changing it i was like i would come back and i was like oh you you didn't do this other thing that looks so good and but she had yes butted it and she changed it like every time she was still changing it so finally like a a couple weeks after the workshop, I guess she finished it on her own, and she said, you know, I realize I yes but my quilt a lot, and I yes but a lot in my life, but she worked through it. She worked through her yes but and her quilt, and finally to a yes-and, and she'd made this beautiful quilt. And then she would sent me a picture of it and she said, yeah, and I recognize that I do yes, but in my life a lot too. So this was a great opportunity for me to move past that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and then, you know, yes, and is a fundamental, uh, technique that they teach you in improv drama class. And I was so fascinated to see that you had taken an improv drama class as part of your preparation for writing your book and the instructor Encourage the group uh, to throw up their hands and shout, whoopee, when you make a mistake. And I wondered whether you still do this and if it's translated into something that you sort of show and, and tell your students to do.
1: Oh, yes. I do it and it's great to do it and it feels wonderful. And when I was doing that on the road, that was definitely the most popular part of the show I mean, <laughs> loved it and my friend that was helping me was kind of my roadie he was like everyone loves it when you do whoopee. They just, you know, I mean, you, I can see that they do, but when you have a, a person outside, you know, giving you feedback about what worked and what, you know, what were, really resonated with people who's like, oh, they just love it. And, and it's true. People would just
0: laugh and, and just have so much joy every time I did that. And um to me, it's sort of, it, it reminds me of Julia Child and when she like <laughs> drops the chicken on the floor, you know, and she's like, woo, just pick it up, it's you know. Up.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's good. I've yeah. about that. Yeah, and I do. I encourage people to do that in the workshops, and people enjoy it. And and really, if you did do that for a day, you know, you burn the toast, whoopee. You know, you, you. I don't know, the, the coins run out in the laundromat or something, whoopee. Whatever it is, you think you've made a mistake, and you just go, whoopee. And it, it does lighten you up a lot.
0: Yeah, totally. I think uh, that's uh, right, and that's me, anyways. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to try it. Um, so I'm teaching tonight, so maybe I'll try it tonight. But because um, inevitably there are mistakes. But um, <laughs> so, so you developed a unique uh, quilting technique, which is bias strip piecing on the curve. And I wanted to talk a little bit about how you kind of came to develop something new that way. Um, so you saw this uh, paper collage on Flickr made by another artist, the paper artist, um, Virginia, I don't know how to say her middle name, Kaviria Whipple and decide, I, I think that's how you say it. <laughs> I'm not sure. But you decided to try to create sort of the effect of what she was doing, where there were these, con, uh, concentric rings of color that she was, she's had like a bird in the center and then, uh, that was collaged on. And then this concentric, colorful rings going outward. And you wanted to try that in, you know, in quilting and you'd never sort of seen anybody, you know, use bias strips on the curve and decided to kind of try it without any, you know, tutorial or guidance and kind of figured it out on your, on your own. And, and then in the end it became the signature technique of yours that you are now so well known for. Um, and I just wondered if you want to talk about that invention, the idea of that invention, if you think it could ever happen again.
1: Yeah, well, I think it can, you know, um, what, so why the, the, how it came. Yeah. Basically when I saw that image, I thought, wow, it would just be so great to be able to create that. How could I do it? And then I was just thinking, like, how could I do it? You know, really, how could I do it? You know, and you just think about it. And then I thought, what is like that? What is there that's like that in quilting? And I thought about bias strip binding. Like when you bias strip, you use bias strip binding on curved edges of quilts, like on a double wedding ring. I wonder who figured that out. Do you think they made, you know, who made that double wedding ring and how did they figure out how to bind it? Right. They're like, how do, I mean, I don't know who figured that out, but that's the person that needs to get some credit. But, you know, so then I just thought, well, if you can do the binding, if the binding will go on the curve, could you use the bias strip on the center in the patchwork? And so it was just making that connection, right? It's looking at what's already there a little bit. And that's when I started to just try and do it. And actually, it's really kind of hard to do, but it is doable. And also... The nice thing with improvisation, since the, the goal is not perfection, the goal is flexibility, uh, whenever there were things that came up, like bubbles or places where it didn't lie flat, there were all different kinds of solutions for fixing that. I could trim it down, I could take a dart, you know, there were all kinds of things I could do to, um, to make it work. Because it it didn't have to be in a specific, it didn't have to be a specific width or a specific angle or, you know, depth of curve. It just had to be, you know, it just had to lie flat, basically. Right. And uh, so that gave me a lot of freedom to explore that. And I'd say, yes, I think um, it could, I think other things, I mean, one of the things that I really want to do next is explore, I mean, I've been thinking about this for a while, is explore patterns of branching and that would be insets and Y seams and I know there's lots of techniques for that although I've never really studied any specific techniques so and I'm not going to I'm just gonna when I'm ready to do that I'm just gonna try to do it and see what happens you know and see where it goes and who knows what I'll come up with. You know,
0: no, let me ask you a little bit about the quilting police because I feel like there's this quilting police. Like I, I make stuffed animals, and one of the reasons I do that is because there is no right way to do it because there's not like a tradition of doing it or some sort of I don't know. There's there are no rules. You're just making an animal, so you can make an animal any way you want, and everybody's interpretation is fine. Um, but I always feel like when I'm quilting, if I show you you. you know, an image of something in progress or something on the blog and, you know, the seams aren't exactly a quarter inch or whatever, that the police are going to come and get me. Like somehow it's wrong. And I wondered when you put this work out there, whether it's through the book or the first improv quilts or your first teaching experiences showing people, you know, okay, there's a bubble. We're going to make a dart. We're going to cut it down. The quilting will, you know, help us to flatten this or whatever. Whether you felt like an insecurity. The the quilting police are going to judge your techniques as somehow unskillful or like you don't know how to do it with a ruler, which is why you're doing it without a ruler or something like that, that you're not precise enough. Did you have that anxiety at all? Is that just me? I I actually never had
1: that anxiety. And it might be because I was still a pretty new quilter when I got introduced to improvisation. So I had not been quilting for very long before I switched. And uh, so that might have been to my advantage. Um, But I see... Now, you know, I really, and I talked a lot about this on my tour, uh, my book tour across country last month. I talked a lot about this to audiences, and I think people really understand this. I mean, we often talk about traditional quilting, and I still um, fall into, I slip into that a lot still. And I, I really try to correct myself when I say that, and I use the term flexible and fixed patterning. Fixed patterning. Um, is what I think people think of as more traditional quilting and flexible patterning is I think the Afri- more the heritage given to us by the African-American quilters such as the Jeeps Ben quilters and others collections that we've been exposed to and other quilters in that tradition that we've been exposed to so I don't want to say one tradition or another tradition because there's many traditions and when I was at the Lincoln in Lincoln, Nebraska at the uh, International Quilt Studies Center and Museum, you know, it was really clear. I mean, they have quilts from all over the world. So there's so many different traditions, okay? And so flexible patterning and fixed patterning have very different goals. And it makes sense if you're doing fixed patterns that you can be judged by your technique, Because there is, um, the goal of that patchwork is to make something, to replicate things exactly the same each time. And it's to achieve some point, you know, points of perfection, literal points of perfection, really. You know, you want your points to match. And, And there are ways to do that that are clean and precise and can be measured. So perfection can be measured. And so and therefore it can be judged. But improvisation has a completely different goal. And that goal is to be flexible. It's it's all the different ways that a pattern can transform and change and vary. So it's looking at, you know, so it has, it. it, it it's not, it can't be judged by those same criteria. And, and that's not the goal of it. So it, it's it's pointless to judge it that way. Now be, that being said, when I put my quilts into uh, QuiltCon, I had my big bias strip curve piece, you know, that I had in there, the big daisy quilt. Uh, I got points off, I guess. I mean, I don't know if I got points off, but I got comments that said, you know, make, you know, my seams weren't pressed the right direction because you could see my dark seams through my white fabrics. And so, I mean, you're going to still be judged in quilt shows when you put your improv work in there, but you don't have to take it for anything, you know? I mean, it's, it doesn't bother me that they say that. It's not important to my, that's not important to me. So, um, So anyways, that's my take on the quilt police. And I I think that people, uh, I think it helps to recognize that there's different goals for different types of patchwork. And, you know, and I can see why there's some reward for reaching that perfection if you're doing fixed patterning. It's, you know, it feels good to be judged that you can do it exactly right. You know, it doesn't feel good if you're not able to do that. Well, maybe... You know, maybe you want to look at doing, you know, types of work that's less, you know, that that's less of the goal. The perfection is less of the goal.
0: Yeah, it's that makes sense. Absolutely. I think I I thank you for that answer because I think it's really spot on. And I think it's just different ways of self-expression and different end goals, as you said. So that's terrific. And, uh, I want to talk a little bit about QuiltCon, um, uh-huh. because, uh, I want to talk about first the, the reaction to the keynote by the quilters of G's Bend. Uh-oh. Um, and I know that, you know, there was just a lot of feelings around it. I wasn't there myself, so I can't speak in the first person about it, but, um, but you said that, you know, some of the QuiltCon attendees had, what you thought was like kind of a difficult time understanding that the G's Bend quilters faith and evangelism and their quilts are kind of one and the same. And, um, and I wondered what sort of your reaction, your personal reaction was to what they said and sort of how, what you thought, how you thought the audience took it in.
1: Well, I also, you know, I took their class too, And uh, the big takeaway I had from a class, which I thought was huge, was that they just gave people permission. They're just like, that's what they're saying. They're just giving people permission to do whatever they're moved to do. And that is so hard to accept that permission. Um, And in some ways, it gives you a lot of responsibility. That's why it's hard to accept it. And so one thing I immediately incorporated into my teaching is to talk about that right off the bat. Because often, even as a teacher doing improv, you know, I have this tendency to want to impose my own rules on people. I want you to follow what I'm teaching you in my class. I want you to do things the way I'm teaching you to do them, right? You know, and I catch myself sometimes wanting to do that, right? And um, so... I, that's the first thing I say in my classes now is like, you you know, I talk about my G spend experience and, and I say, you know, you have permission today in this class to do whatever you want to do. And I will support you as much as I can. And I said, you know, I'm going to give you a framework that will give you some structure to work in and you can choose to work in that structure or not, you know, and that's, you know, so anyways, that's the big takeaway for me was that they're giving people permission. Uh, And the, their evangelism, I was just very moved by it. And for myself personally, I want to work in a more I want to get to that level. I don't feel like I'm working at that level um that on that really spiritual plane at this point yet in my work yet, you know? And so I feel challenged by them to tap into that the most that real essence of of being vulnerable and of Uh, expressing joy and, you know, without censorship in some ways, And, and, and actually almost being a vehicle for the creativity rather than the person in charge of the creativity. And so I felt very inspired. I think it was easy for me to not... You know, I I think people have a lot of fear of religion and Christianity right now and our culture, so it was hard for them to separate. That to see that message in their work, um, in, in the audience. I mean, not everyone. I'm, I think a lot of people felt like I felt, too. Um, but I saw a lot of people that were upset and af- almost offended that they were being evangelized, to. And I'm like, well, they, <laughs> this is their, you ask them to come talk about their quilts, and that's what they're doing. You know, this is what their quilts are about. You know, it's really what they're about. That's where they work from. That's the level they're working on. And I think, you know, hopefully people start to take that in or see that to some degree.
0: Yeah, you know, yeah.
1: it's not about design for them. It's not about being original. It's not about any of that for them.
0: Right. I think yeah. that's a really valuable way to think about it. Um, think, it's yeah. about, and it's about honesty, really. Yeah. Really about honesty. And the thing that was, I, this
1: was a great thing I got on my tour because I talk about authenticity versus originality in the improv handbook. Um, but what was so great when I was in Lincoln and I was asking—I always ask about people's experiences of the G's Ben quilts because so many people have seen them. And it was that—that that crowd was a nice mixed crowd because there's a lot of women who probably were very into quilt making, and and a lot of them had brought their husbands, and so there were a lot of husbands in the audience. And so it was more of a mixed crowd. And one of the husbands just talked about what struck him was them talking about honesty and that the quilts were about honesty. I'm like, oh yeah, that's the word. Authenticity is a great word, but what I really want to talk about is honesty. And I think that, uh, I mean, I don't even know what that is sometimes, you know, with all of the, the media that we negotiate these days and who we really are and how are we able to be honest, just really honest with ourselves when we're in our spaces and creating
0: Yeah. And I think that you do a really nice job of, of tying together kind of a mind and body connection with quilting where, you know, in the book there are exercises to do. And I know you do this when you teach as well, where you get centered, um, and you talk about cutting from your core and sort of finding your true line, you know, that you would cut along without dependence on a ruler, like your natural way of cutting, (laughs) um, and, and sort of being centered really noticing where you are and how you're feeling as you're stitching and as you're quilting and as you're cutting. Um, and I, I don't know, I, I'm sort of seeing that now kind of as a, in a cultural trend among quilting where it's come to painting. For example, I think about like Flora Boley and brave intuitive you, where she talks a lot about painting in that same way. Um, and, but, but I feel like you're sort of leading the pack when it comes to seeing that coming now to quilting. Um, And I love it. I think that's, it's terrific and it's it's exciting to watch.
1: Great. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I think it's really important. I mean, if you're improvising, really people think improv, a lot of people uh, confuse improvising with randomness and actually it's, they're, they're really opposite processes. I mean, random is, there's no choice. Improv is, everything is choice. Now, you can use random elements of randomness to um, spark your spontaneity, to, to get you out of habits, you know. Um, by having to put random things together, it makes you think differently and make different decisions than you normally would make, perhaps. Um, but they're, re- they're really a different thing. And improv is really all about choice. That's why it can be hard for some people and you can't make choices unless you're uh, aware of what your preferences are and what you want. And you can't know that unless you listen to yourself and ask yourself. And if you're distracted, uh, you know, if you can't be present to what's happening within you, then you're not going to be able to make uh, focused decisions, you're not going to know what you want. You're not going to know what pleases you, you know, that, or, or what what challenges you. So, you, you know, you'll just work by habit. And so that's, I think, really a key ingredient to improvisation. And when you're on the stage, you know, you're kind of forced into that a lot of times. <laughs>
0: yeah you see these performance they're like a, almost a performance quilting yeah.
1: and so when you're doing it with quilt with, with when you're doing it with quilting it's like slow performance so there is this more meditative element that comes into it in a way you know with theater you or music you have to really be in the moment because you have to respond instantly and with uh, quilting it's a slow response so it's For me, it's a more of a meditative aspect to it, Mm -hmm. I guess.
0: So tell me a little bit about sort of life, both professionally and personally, before this book came out and kind of got into everybody's hands and then afterward. I mean, has it changed you? Has it changed your professional life? Has it changed the way you feel about your work, about where you belong? Um, Well, you know,
1: it's still pretty new, so uh, a lot of it's just taking it in, and it's very exciting to be reaching a a large audience, a broad audience, um, and being able to share my ideas that way. Uh, It's definitely changing my lifestyle a little bit I'm not used to traveling as much as I've traveled this spring and summer and I'm not going to be traveling as much this fall but I see more things coming up in the next couple of years and and I like the traveling of course and I I do like uh, I do I mean I do like the opportunities and it and it also I like the financial opportunities because it's very hard to um you know because I'm single and I'm on my own to have to you know that's this is the challenge of every creative person is how do you financially sustain yourself by doing your creative work and so it feels good to have a little more sustenance a little bit more ability to sustain myself without as much living on the edge although there's still plenty of living on the edge and uh so I like that the The traveling is just really different. I mean it's been harder for you know I have to think of self care a little more a little differently it's It's very easy to get out of shape when I don't have the grounding of my daily routine uh, to keep me on task with working out and meditating and and all the other things that I like to do and, and staying connected with friends and things like that. So I'm still figuring all of that out. Like I used to always have a Coke whenever I'd fly. I'm like, okay, I'll have a Coke because I'm flying. It's, you know, kind of a unique thing. And then I realized, you know, I can't have a Coke every time (laughs) I get on the plane now. This is not going to work. You know, I kind of switched that, you know, I can't do that. And so it is some of it's just, you know, readjusting And, um, but I love meeting all the people that I've been meeting and working. I really enjoy teaching and working with people. I also want to find, you know, I haven't, I made 12 quilts the year I made, wrote the book and I'm, I've made one quilt this year. So uh, and half the year's over. So I also have to, so it's about finding new ways to balance, you right. know, it's a new kind of balance I need to figure out. And I'm still in the midst of that.
0: Yeah. It is really, um, it is really tough, uh, to make time, to go back to the studio and do the things that you've become most known for once you've become known for them. You know, it's really, yeah. it's hard. It's a constant yeah. balance. Um, but then if you don't continue to do it, right, things don't move forward. So you have to. Um, yeah, it's a push and a pull.
1: That's right. And the other thing that I struggle with too, and, uh, and, and you know, the popular thing is, is like, oh, working on your brand. And I just... I I think the question for me, more than working on my brand, is the question that I keep asking myself is, you know, who am I when nobody is listening, you know? I, I feel like, you know, the hard part sometimes about this is keeping a sense of, of who I really am, you right. know? And, uh Uh, and, and continue to cultivate that knowledge, um, because it's so easy to get caught up in, you know, the image of who you are as as you start to have more of a public presence.
0: And it becomes out of sync, right? So you have the public you, and then you have the real you, the internal you. And at one point they were together and that togetherness produced the success, And then now it's easy for them to become separated. There's the you who does performance and the you who's, you know, on Facebook. And (laughs) there's, like, the public you. uh, And then there's the the internal you. And they they are, are easily sort of out of sync. Um, once, once there is a public one, you know, pri when you don't have a real big public one, it's easier for, to keep them together.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's a good way of, uh, that's, that's exactly how it is. It's about, you know, finding that integrity and right. keeping that integrity, um, happening as you, um, you know, um, become, have more of a, an audience.
0: That's Definitely. Right. Yeah. Um, okay, super. So um, do you want to tell us anything about um, what we can look forward to if you have any events or um, other things that are happening, coming up that you want people to know about?
1: Yes, I still have a couple of places open. At my, I'm teaching a, for a whole week at Quilting by the Lake in Syracuse, New York. And I'm doing a two-day class on improvising from a score, which teaches people how to set limits to find flow. And that's what you—that's what replaces the plan. You don't need a plan as long as you have your limits and you can find your flow. And um, so that's a really uh, wonderful, it's, we're going to have two days of working on that and then three days of curves. So if anybody really wants to get into de- in-depth With improvisational patchwork, this is such a great opportunity, and it doesn't come along very often, and really the cost is very reasonable. And so if anybody's out there, it's the 27th through the 31st of July. Uh, There's still like three or four – I think there's one space in one of the classes and maybe two or three spaces in the other class. So um, I would definitely encourage people to call Quilting by the Lake – Look them up online and and or come to my website and they can find out about it. Super, about that, that sounds
0: great. And all of your other upcoming teaching dates will be on your on your blog list. Yeah, most, well. most of those are through guilds, so they're uh-huh. guild uh-huh. sponsored. And um, if they're regional,
1: um, like I'll be teaching in Pennsylvania in October and Central Florida in October. So you know, if they're near one of those places, they could contact and see if they could get in through the guild. Uh, and then otherwise quilt con is the next time I'm teaching. So. All right.
0: Super. Yeah. That's terrific. Okay. I want to get to, um, your recommendations cause you have three really good ones. Um, and the first one I want to talk about, I'm going to go out of order. Hope that's okay. With <laughs> <you>. <laughs> I want to talk about patchwork in the wild because this is something that I've been admiring that you've been doing on social media. And um, it's a hashtag patchwork in the wild and, um, you are taking pictures Of sort of unexpected images that are like patchwork in a way. Um, and, and I love them and I think it's such a fascinating idea. And now I start to see them when I go places. Um, like is that, would that qualify as patchwork in the wild? So tell us a little bit about sort of what qualifies. Yeah, well, I started that on the road trip and started thinking about it.
1: I mean, it's really easy to see patterns that you can imagine translating into patchwork because they're everywhere, you know, like the the way the bridge is formed or things like that. And that's really kind of exciting too. Um, but then I wanted to think about, you know, just what is patchwork itself and if you take it out of the quilting context and what things we see in our environment that are patched. And certainly when you're flying over a plane and you see the landscape, it's kind of patched when you see, um, you know, how, uh, fields are patched together to create, you know, to fit into the space. It's, you know, it's like you have a field here and the shape and that shape, and it has to move or with the thing. So it's, some of it is, So I think of, like, gardens can be patchwork in the wild, the way things kind of just grow into spaces. Um, But then also in more urban settings, it's, it's things that are kind of in repair and disrepair and repair and disrepair, like roads and graffiti paint overs. And, you know, I noticed with a lot of construction sites, there's things that are patched together like awnings and coverings and, um, things like that. And so it's just like, we're old signs that have been patched up. I've, I've noticed that. And, uh, sometimes like I saw the truck, you know, sometimes I just see patched patterns that come out of, you know, something that's just functioned to, you know, that, like, the ends of these boards on the truck that create a pattern. So I'm not sure it's got a well-defined thing, but it's 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 maybe it's still being defined. Uh, but it's more of, you know, this process of patching, I think, of seeing things that have been patched together, either out of, you know, mostly out of disrepair and repair cycle. I think it's the most common thing I see.
0: And I think it's a lovely thing to share on social media. Like, I think it's... <laughs> Um, talking about developing your brand, even unintentionally, um, I think that totally hits the spot.
1: So (laughs) yeah, yeah. and it's hard, it's hard to find them. You see them some, but they're not, not everything qualifies exactly. Yeah.
0: But we get to see through your eyes and I think that is great. Um, yeah. yeah.
1: And I hope people will add to that. Yeah.
0: Oh, uh, I totally will. I'm, I'm like looking all the time now. (laughs) Um, okay. And one more quick recommendation, which, which is about dancing. So we talked about how you took a theater workshop and sort of all these sort of different ways of, of being, of improvising. And you kind of see dancing somewhat like that. It's kind of finding your flow and experimenting and being spontaneous, um, and patterns, right? Like repetitive patterns and dancing and in music. So talk a little bit about your, you know, love of dancing.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think dancing is great. I'm so glad that quilt con has a dance every year. Um, it's uh, great for us to move our bodies and, you know, pattern making, you know, we make patterns with our bodies physically and dancing is a great opportunity in this kind of freeform dancing to explore patterns and explore the way you make patterns. And, uh, it's fast and easy and, uh, You know, like I love to, it requires you to listen and to respond not only to the music, but to a partner or a group if you're dancing with a group. And uh, it allows you to try out moves, like, and you can repeat a move for a while, and then all of a sudden you'll notice, like, I'm ready to shift it, and you can change it so you can really see your, uh the ways that you like to make patterns. Like if you like to stick with one pattern for a really long time, or you like to just, just go all over the place all the time, or, you know, you're always switching it up or, uh, so it's, you yeah, know, it's kind of fun. It's joyful. It, it brings out your spontaneity. Um, and you know, helps perhaps get out of yourself You know, I think, Sometimes people can be self-conscious about dancing. I mean, I can be. And so by thinking about it more as exploring improvisation and movement, uh, I enjoy dancing a lot more, and I'm a better dancer when I'm thinking about that rather than, you know, do I look cool when I dance or not, you know, or can I really move or not? You know, it's like, okay, I'm just going to explore the way I move, the way I like to move. And uh, and so I think dancing's great. I think it's a great practice. One of the things I always do is talk to people about uh, what other ways do they improvise in their life. If they're good improvisational cooks, then some of the little things that they do as cooks they can translate into that into their patchwork and vice versa i mean it's all one i mean improvisation is a life process and we you know patchwork is just one discipline and i think the ways we improvise translate in in between disciplines so dancing uh, we'll improve your patchwork and patchwork will improve your dancing. If you're improv improvising in patchwork, it's all about flexible patterning. So,
0: and on um, that is a great note to end on Sherry. Thank <laughs> you so much. It's really been great <laughs> talking to you and thank you for taking the time to be on the Walshing Apps podcast. It's a, it's a wonderful interview. Thank you. And you've been listening to the Walshing Apps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg and I invite you to visit my blog, WalshingApps.com where you'll find helpful information for creative entrepreneurs as well as tutorials and podcasts patterns for making stuffed animals and dolls and if you enjoy the show tell a friend about it thank you so much and i'll see you next time